What's going on, folks? Welcome back to yet another episode of In Defense of Liberation, the show that is working towards and educating about a true people's liberation movement and one day soon a true proletarian revolution. If this is your first time tuning in, I'd like to say thanks so much for stopping by. I am your host, Josh, and it means a lot that you would uh, check out the show. So uh, if you end up, you know, enjoying it, let me know what you think. Uh, Go ahead and, uh, you know, leave me some kind of rating or review, or you can DM me on TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook by... uh, hit me up is in defense of liberation and you can also email me in defense of liberation at gmail.com no caps or spaces there um but if this is you tuning back in what's up what's up we're doing morning commute today is february 9th i believe yep february 9th 2022 it is a bright sunny but cold as shit day here in new york Uh, It's a nice 9 degrees Fahrenheit, and uh, we got some nice icy snow on the ground. Things are looking horrid as ever. Uh, For anybody who, uh, you know, is not a huge fan of these winter months, but unfortunately, (laughs) it is what it is, but things are all right. Um, I wanted to play a little news anchor today, because I, you know commonly read uh liberation news people's dispatch um and other news sites like the real news network um on a like daily basis that's usually what i do in the morning is i my cup of coffee and my bong uh you know and and have a morning to myself with the the uh news on the laptop and everything and i also listen to you know uh podcasts and uh other content that is not necessarily, quote, news-oriented, but what we might call, like, movement-oriented. So I'm thinking here, like, uh, by any means necessary, the Red Nation podcast. Um, Oh, there's a few more. I'm thinking here also of Guerrilla History podcast and Give the People What They Want. Um, but also I'm thinking of, uh, Romero Sebastian Foynez's, uh, um, stream on YouTube, Unmasking Imperialism. I'm thinking here also of, uh, Troika Collective. I'm thinking here also of Kawasachin News, um, and, uh, other programs on, um, uh, YouTube. But anyways, um... So I wanted to hit on some of the things that are being reported on right now um, that I've been reading about and kind of pull out some points that I think connect between most of them uh, and just kind of give folks a little update on what's been going on worldwide because if we can't really keep up with all the news, you know, what do you expect? Um, But so I want to start with uh, two recommendations of uh, podcasts that I think were really good that would be enjoyable aren't necessarily um, uh, aren't necessarily 
in the same light as, you know, news and people's movements, but I just thought they were really good, and I think you should listen to them. Uh, Africa Unite, the African Union Meets by uh, Eugene Perrier over at Breakthrough News with the Punch-Out, and also uh, Indigenous Plurinationalism with New Amatu Part 1 by the Red Nation Podcast two episodes that I thought were stellar. Um, I'm only about three quarters of the way through the Red Nation episode, but I would say to this point, it's been great. It's been a lot to learn, and I think everybody should listen to it, especially since it's only the part one of the interview. Um, But yeah, so the African Union met recently, um, and that's, you know, huge and uh, almost barely being covered. Um, again, check out that episode of the punch out and also check out by any means necessary. I believe they did some coverage of it, but you know, one thing that we are seeing, uh, as an uptick in, you know, uh, geopolitical strategy and, uh, internationalism is this idea of pan-Africanism, which is coming to the fore once again, as it often does, um, because Africa, like many other global South uh, continents, is constantly under the uh, thumb of imperialism and also consistently being the exploitative labor base or the exploited labor base of the capitalist global market. We often hear about the impoverishment and suffering that happens on continents like Africa, but we very rarely uh, get an analysis as to why. So I just wanted to mention this conference and wanted to mention also another conference that took place in Africa uh, that I believe is very, very important, which was the uh, African National uh, Meeting to uh, Ban Debt, I think it was called. Actually, it was at the African Union Summit in 1987, and Thomas Sankara specifically gave a speech called A United Front Against Debt. Where Thomas Sankara, along with other uh, leaders of uh, resistance movements and African nations, spoke out against the way in which the World Bank, the IMF, and other international loaners were uh, suffocating the continent of Africa through loans and through debt, and what we now have come to to coin uh, neo-colonialism and uh, uh, neoliberalism. But as we know, not all African nations are currently uh, under the the control of the masses, under the control of the uh, majority's interests. So because of that, there's commonly uh, contradictions between the uh, leading groups within these nations that, you know, to those of us who live in uh, the U.S., uh, especially, you know, non-black or non-African people, um, we oftentimes can't understand, uh, you know, even looking at Latin America or Asia, you know, why can't folks come together? Why can't they understand that? you know, U.S. imperialism is their number one enemy, um, it comes off as very chauvinistic. And I think that, like, for example, one of the things that they spoke about was the fact that uh, Israel uh, is currently considered an observer nation. 
meaning that essentially they have a tangible role within the continent and they are recognized as a you know sovereign nation by some of those uh, member states of the African Union. Now, they decided to ban a conversation and a debate on this any further because they felt that it would lead to disunity and, uh, you know, opportunity for imperialism to come in and uh, yet again sweep control out from under the African people, uh, which is, you know, a clear sign that they're moving towards uh, not recognizing Israel as such, or there is at least enough combativeness and a contradiction enough that they can't just outright declare that they will continue recognizing Israel. So this is a good sign. Um, you know, it, it's a movement towards something. And that's what we're looking for. We're looking to uh, understand movements. We're looking to learn about how people organize themselves and how they try to, you know, combat the contradictions and resolve the issues that they're facing. Speaking of resolving issues and contradictions... Let's talk about China real quick. Now, I'm not going to get too far into the global uh, politics and the, you know, uh, analysis of capitalist versus socialist uh, because I'm a, a white dude in New York driving in my car on my way to my minimum wage job, you know, thousands and thousands of miles away from the country. So what I would like to talk about is the fact that right now China is on the move in a lot of places and it seems that a lot of places that China is developing alliances with and uh, you know signing on to their Belt and Road Initiative really seem to be reciprocating uh, the feelings that China has towards the want for internationalism. They seem to be uh, you know very very fond of the way in which China is developing. Uh, and helping other nations to develop, especially in comparison with the long-standing colonial and imperial model of, uh, you know, uh, exploitation and oppression. And, you know, this has a lot of implications. Um, there's a lot of complications to these, you know, uh, developments. But I want to talk about a few different specifics, a few different developments that are happening that I think are crucial. So one, the uh, website peoplesdispatch.org recently uh, wrote an article talking about China's, uh, you know, striving towards uh, not only participation within the Olympics, but also um, their hosting of the Olympics um, and the, uh, you know, political... Uh, struggle between the nationalists from the Kuomintang uh, who escaped into Taiwan who for, you know, uh, 100, almost 80 years, I want to say. Yeah, just about 80 years since 49, right around. um, Have been basically trying to claim Taiwan either as the Republic of China Uh, as they claimed on, you know, multiple Olympic stages throughout the 70s and 80s. But also, uh, nowadays, as we know, trying to claim Taiwan as a sovereign nation. Now, many people don't know much about the One China policy, uh, and they don't really understand when this is brought up what that 
really means. Uh, but when we're looking at the one China policy, ultimately what it believes is that China is stronger together. So if it is capable of finding ways to work as a united republic, uh, it is more likely to be able to succeed in aiding the people and giving the people what they need rather than having a bunch of separate autonomous regions like Taiwan, like Hong Kong, like Tibet, because we understand if we look historically that a lot of these regions have been used by uh, former nationalists, former feudalists, and former reactionaries as uh, home bases after, you know, civil war and conflict with the Chinese communist movement and the people of the People's Republic of China. And so, uh, you know, we have to understand this when we're looking at the one China policy and really keep that in our frame of mind. Otherwise, we're going to fall victim to the propaganda and to the posturing that is being, uh, you know, put up by Uh, you know, the people of uh, the region of Taiwan uh, and, uh, you know, also the way in which the United States government is using uh, these contradictions to be able to seed foment, seed and foment, uh, you know, uh, inter-fighting between uh, people who really are trying to develop together. If we also look here in China, we see that uh, recently uh, it released a statement with the uh, Russian government. Uh, you can find that at en.kremlin.ru forward slash supplement forward slash 577 zero. So Russia and China are two nations that are actively being fought on a uh, global scale. NATO, the United Nations, and other fronts are being used to try to attack, uh, uh, decentralize, destabilize, and ultimately uh, destroy these nations that pose a uh, hegemonic and also an economic threat uh, to the global powers that be, uh, that being Europe, you know, France, England, uh, uh, Germany, and also the United States, uh, Canada, Australia, and, and other nations. But, um, so basically, uh, they came out and they said a lot. I wasn't able to read the whole document. So, you know, go ahead and read that yourself. But one thing that I saw them focusing on that made me remember to mention the Red Nation episode at the top was this mention of what they call multipolarity and, and uh, uh, you know, kind of what that would look like. But also, and I will stress this because I think that it's an important conversation we consistently need to be having, but it doesn't need to be a debate and uh, 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 an attack barrage. But, uh, you know, this analysis of the global situation, things like economic globalization, um, you know, what they call the information society, the ever-growing cultural, national, ethnic, and political diversity 
as well as a transformation in that way of world government, which they, you know, look towards multipolarity or what uh, might be talked about in an inner state, uh, you know, uh, organization as uh, a, a plurinational uh, government structure. So I want to hit on this quick and then I'll hit on some of the other points they talk about and we'll move on. But basically, one, I think it's so incredible that we are starting to see more and more this conversation of multipolarity because as we know, the United States and European nations uh, prior to the United States for hundreds of years have basically dictated the terms by which society has developed not only in their own nations, but also across the world. We can't separate the reality that exists today from the history that built it. And that history being one of enslavement, genocide, mass starvation, colonization, essentially pillaging and you know destroying entire people groups. Um, You also have the development of certain forms of government, which are commonly referred to as democracy, right? We'll get to that in a second. But you have also this global capitalist system that has enveloped the entire globe, therefore why it's called a global or globalized system, which is in a lot of ways, almost inescapable, even for those countries that desperately want to sever ties with any and all forms of capitalist and imperialist development. Now, we know that this is something that historically nations have had to struggle against. We're thinking here of the nations like uh, uh, Ghana, thinking here of Burkina Faso, but also of nations like the Soviet Union, China today, and also, you know, smaller nations like Cuba, like Nicaragua, like Honduras, like Haiti, which have had to suffer under the consequences, among many other nations, for having dared to develop systems based not on their own exploitation, but on their own development and dictatorship, in a way, over their own society, nation, resources, and human capabilities. That's knowledge, that's labor, that's everything. That's Olympic gold medalists. So, they also bring up this idea that unilateralism, right? The way in which the United States ultimately really is dictating uh, the way in which society is being run. Uh, This is what we call unilateralism. Um, Unilateralism, right? It stands in stark, stark contrast of the internationalism that is not only needed, but ultimately, you know, called for by a majority of the world's population. 
This is, you know, crucial to understand when we're talking about multipolarity, plurinationalism, and also democracy. Because, again, this unilateral defender of democracy and freedom and liberty across the world, the United States, is the same nation that continues amongst active genocide and mass starvation of people in Yemen, in Afghanistan, in Palestine, and across the globe. They continue to aid in these efforts by arming, financing, training, and actively fighting alongside the genocidal governments such as Israel, which recently, you know, there's been a whole lot of talk that Amnesty International wrote a report calling them, you know, an apartheid regime, which I don't think is necessarily, you know, uh, I, you can't call that bad at all because up until this point, you couldn't get anybody to call it an apartheid regime. regime. But we know that it is more than just simple apartheid. It is more than just you know, apartheid in and of itself. This is an active, ongoing colonial project and a genocidal campaign against Palestinian and, more importantly, non-Israeli people. This is a, you know, a society that was set up by imperialists so as to be able to foment division within the region. And they've done a great job. And, you know, I don't think that the leaders of Israel by far have any kind of uh, guiltlessness. But to understand that this shit was crafted, crafted the same way that, you know, Africa was cut up and into pieces by the colonial powers in the same way that Latin America was torn to pieces for all its metals, all of its jewels, all of its crops, all of its people. In the same way that Asia is actively being torn to bits by the imperialists, by the sweatshops, by the private corporations, by the global industries, and by the global ruling class. All of this is similar in the sense that it is not an accident. It's not some religious beef. It's not two groups of people who just can't get along. And it's certainly not people who have gotten so far down the rabbit hole that they've forgotten why they're fighting. They know why they're fighting. The Palestinian people, 100%, are well aware as to why they are resisting and actively engaging in armed struggle against the Israeli settler colonial state. That is because they are under threat of genocide in the same way that indigenous peoples today are actively resisting the genocidal campaigns that are continuing under the colonialist system of what we call the United States of America. In the same way that black, 
Latino, Chicano, and Asian immigrants, as well as, you know, formerly enslaved folks and descendants of formerly enslaved peoples um, who are actively, you know, suffering mass incarceration, public health discrimination, environmental racism, active police brutality, reactionary violence by the white mobs and the fascist and neo-Nazi groups within what we call a, quote, democracy. This is the reality that exists here and exists around the world, and we cannot ignore it, we cannot cherry coat it, we cannot describe it in any other way than its truthful reality. So speaking in that way, we must look uh, to the truthful reality that was the Amir Locke killing in Minneapolis. Now, there was a press conference where the mayor, Jacob Frey, and I believe the police chief, uh, was uh, given a um, a little press conference where they basically, yeah, the guy's last name is Huffman, or the person's last name is Huffman. I believe it was actually a woman. Um, but anyways, yeah, the police commissioner, I believe, and uh, the mayor trying to give a press conference, and they basically said that, you know, as they always do, Police officers feared for their life. They had a gun. Da 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 da. But let's break it down, right? Amir Locke, 22 years old, right? Sleeping in his bedroom early hours of the morning. February 2nd, right? Police officers hit a no knock warrant on his door. What that means is a fucking SWAT team broke into his house. That's what that is. A Gestapo. Uh, you know, uh, roving gang of armed, uh, you know, reactionaries broke into the home of a private citizen who had, you know, honestly, uh, in a lot of, if you want to analyze it, like realistically, understand that, you know, what kind of threat did Amir Locke actually pose to multiple officers armed to the fucking teeth? Nothing. We know that because, unfortunately, today, Amir Locke is dead at the hands of the Minneapolis Police Department. The same police department, let us not forget, that murdered George Floyd in 2020. The same police department that has been, uh, you know, committing acts of terror against activists and organizers within Minneapolis. The same police department that came out and said that Amir Locke was possibly going to fire at the officers. There was, quote, no way to know that he was not going to shoot back. But if we look clearly at police footage, and this is the cool thing about, you know, actually studying and looking at footage and evidence, Amir Locke's finger was not on the trigger, nor was the barrel of the gun pointed in the direction of the officers. Two things which uphold the active gun laws and gun uh, safety rules that you are taught within gun, uh, you know, ownership classes. Meaning that this 22-year-old kid had better trigger discipline than a fucking cop. Why do we keep having this same goddamn fucking conversation, huh? This is bullshit. Fuck those cops. Get rid of all their guns. 
throw those motherfuckers in prison and let the people who are there take care of them. Because ultimately, here's the thing also about prisons that I'd like to say. Because a lot of folks would get bogged down in this understanding of we're anti-prisons, we're anti-imprisonment. What does that mean in the reality we exist in? If we are not in power, we can't get rid of prisons. But prisoners can get rid of those who hurt the people, who harm the people, and are punished by the people. So remember that. Because ultimately, until we got people's tribunals, until we got forms of punishment that ultimately the masses of people are organized and capable of administering, we are beholden to the existing systems of punishment, which ultimately do not rehabilitate. And so in this way, we have to find something anything to be able to seek justice for folks like Amir Locke, like George Floyd, like Breonna Taylor, whose boyfriend was under the same uh, uh, attacks uh, by the police department and by reactionaries about his own gun ownership. Well, listen, let me tell you this. Until those motherfuckers in blue uniforms and until those motherfuckers in the military put their guns away and get rid of their guns, I don't think any single one of us should get rid of our guns by any reason, by any means necessary. There is absolutely no reason under no context by which that people who have a Second Amendment right to arm themselves against a repressive and tyrannical government should not be arming themselves. They should. They should be arming themselves. They should be training themselves on how to use these weapons properly and following the legal structures that exist within their localities and states in order to not be under more suffering, under more scrupulation by the existing tyrannical government. Speaking of amendments. So we're looking here at a Fourth Amendment right violation. That is, no unreasonable searches. Why'd they break into Amir Locke's house, huh? They broke into his house because police exist for one purpose and one purpose only. To neutralize their enemy. To put down anyone that stands up or stands against what the police exist to defend. And the police exist to defend something by any means necessary usually up to lethal, uh, you know, means. Oftentimes, explicitly lethal means. They did not even say, put down your gun. This was an assassination. This was an active murder by the Minneapolis Police Department. And an amazing, amazing person uh, let me, I got a note list here, so I want to make sure I get the name right. Nikema Levy Armstrong. Shout out Nikema Levy Armstrong. If you haven't seen the video, there's a video of her getting up in front of the cameras, pulling out her shirt and saying, listen, I don't have any guns, but this is bullshit. This is bullshit because these fucking police officers and the mayor of Minneapolis are coming out here and they're doing the same fucking bullshit they did when they killed George Floyd. They're lying, they're misrepresenting evidence, and they are actively ignoring the calls of the people. Not only are they actively ignoring the calls of the people, but when Nakima stood up and did this, and when journalists decided to ask questions, guess what? 
The mayor and the police commissioner left. They walked out without answering a single goddamn question. I bring us back to our conversation of fascism we've been having recently. A system that is so in control that it need not even answer the questions of why it murdered a 22-year-old boy. A boy! By any means, that, that's, I'm 22 years old. That is a child. That boy was living in a position where he felt he needed to have a weapon to defend himself. What kind of reality is that? What kind of reality that we live in, a child that's four years out of high school needs to know how to use a gun better than a, a, a police officer and still ends up dead. What kind of world do we live in? A fascist one. A fascist dictatorship exists here in the American uh, 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 um, uh, uh, settler colonial project and it cannot be called anything except that. This is active uh, uh, police state. This is an active form of, you know, pure and utter uh, control, oppression, and, uh, you know, active assault. So just clarifying here, real quick before moving on to the next thing. In the 1970s, no-knock warrants became illegal, or became legal. Since then, approximately 20 thousand are executed every single year by this government this government that has the highest incarceration rate of the entire world and although it has only approximately two percent of its own population within prisons and it has approximately less than five percent of the global population within its borders it has approximately 25 percent of the world's prison population within its own prisons. Let that sink in. The last thing I want to mention is this. You know, we commonly think of police officers uh, in many different ways, given our, you know, personal experience, probably, given our political ideology, probably given our skin color and our uh, character of, you know, class and, and place within society. But Amir Locke's father, Andre Locke, came out and asked the very simple question, who told these fucking pigs that they are jury, judge, and executioner? Somebody had to tell them. Somebody had to convince these folks that it's okay to go around with their guns ablazing, killing folks left and right more than they do any other part of their job. Who told them? I got an answer for you. Uh, I believe that our history, our government, our ruling class, and the owners of private property and private capital have explicitly told these people that they are judge, jury, and executioner. You wanna know why? And I say this with all the, the sadness and, and, and you know, 
brutal reality in my heart, but they keep getting away with it. Unfortunately, that's what's telling them. Unfortunately, the awful truth is police officers exist with a certain immunity that has yet to be actively broken down here within the states. Now, I'd like to mention here that I feel personally that this is because this nation that we call the United States was ultimately founded on a point of, you know, reference, a relationship between those in power and those under the control of those with power that was predicated on the oppression, the suffering, and the exploitation of the many by the few. Because of that, let's speak strategically here, we gotta know that a force that is smaller than its enemy needs certain forms of repression and violence that overcome that larger enemy. Now, I would say that the police force and the military, the National Guard, the prison system, mass education, the media, and all other forms of control, capture, and, uh, you know, coercion that the state participates in are all active fronts to attack the people. So because of that, We have to know, or should know, that all of this exists for a purpose. It's not a bunch of evil people who 200 years ago set this all up, and ever since then it's just been a bunch of people who just can't get it figured out. They just can't compromise well enough to be able to change it. It's a government and a ruling class across the world that is actively benefiting from this system of oppression. We can't ignore the fact that these relationships are the basis by which the people in charge acquire their wealth, their power, and their control. So going further with that thought, let's talk about some other things that are going on across the world. Why don't we hit on uh, something happening right here in the U.S. on Turtle Island. So 
we got a lot going on with COVID, right? And I, I've been hoping to try to get an episode together to talk with someone about this that has more experience and more expertise than me. Uh, but I haven't really heard back from many folks. Um, but one thing that we are facing currently and have been for a long time is this question of whether or not to do uh, schooling in person uh, and also how really to go about doing it either in person or not in person. And there's been a lot that's been going on with this. We've seen a lot of teachers like the Chicago Teachers Union going on strike. And right now we're seeing a movement in Oakland uh, at the, uh, let me see here, the Oakland Unified School District. Uh, you're having some, some movements being led by students where approximately... 9,000 kids sick outed. Basically, none of them showed up to school as a form of, you know, boycott and, and protest to show solidarity with the already existing push by teachers for certain protections and certain assistance that they have not received at all during this period of time and especially haven't received since resuming in-person classes. So the students uh, called for a public town hall on January 21st. At that town hall, some uh, you know conversation was had. Uh, demands were made. Those demands being threefold. One, that all students and faculty are provided KN95 or N95 masks. The second being that two times a week, both PCR and rapid tests are administered to students and faculty, especially all those on campus. And the third thing being that they required more outdoor seating areas for eating, for, um, you know, studying, especially ones that could help protect from the rain. Now, initially, the school district basically flipped them the bird. But then they went on strike. And folks, we're seeing all across the country, in Buffalo, at Starbucks, we're seeing across the country at Union Met Coal, at, you know, the Exxon Mobil plant in Texas, that different forms of strikes, of unionizing, of, you know, uh, collectivist struggle, are a million times more successful than attempts by governments, or excuse me, by attempts uh, by individuals to call out governments and critique governments without a real power structure to fight and struggle together with. And it's difficult, you know, as we've talked about, organization is difficult. We don't oftentimes have real deep connections with people in the way that we would like. And we oftentimes also don't have the time and the, you know, motivation to work on that because, well, for one, we're all fucking tired from working and going to school all the time and being busy and being, you know, poor and 
uh, struggling to provide for ourselves our most basic human needs. But also on top of that, because we don't really have a pre-existing like reality that helps us to understand how we do that. So there's a lot of difficulties that get in the way of organizing, right? But I think one of the most important ones that gets in the way of organizing is the threats of retaliation. I mean, look at the way in which people are treated when they unionize. Speaking of the Starbucks workers that unionize, they're currently all being fired for supposedly breaking policies that they'd, you know, not really ever had any issues with over the course of the years that they'd worked there. And now all of a sudden, Starbucks is using it as grounds to fire them all. That's retaliation. You got folks in the tenant union I'm helping organize that really fear coming out and speaking to codes or speaking to the news that wanted to come down and interview people or even speaking to the tenant union because they're fearful that if they're seen speaking to us or if their name comes up, one day that eviction notice is going to be on their door. And we know it's technically illegal for retaliatory evictions, retaliatory rent raises and stuff like that. But you know what else we know? We also know that that shit still fucking happens. We still know that people are getting evicted and have been, especially in my local area, but also across the world throughout this period of time that there was supposedly this eviction moratorium. So we have to really do more than just depend on their word. We got to hold them to it. We got to make these folks accountable. And if they're not accountable, we have to remember that, you know, if we want to do something about that, we got to have folks together with us. You can't be just you, me, and our our buddies showing up and being like, hey, we really think you ought to listen to us. Because what the fuck is going to, not for nothing, what's scaring them into listening to us? What's intimidating them? Because, you know, for example, a lot of the things that you can threaten these massive property building owners uh, with is fines. It's like one of the very few things that'll happen to them. But they're like $1,000 fines. And like, for example, the property that I'm helping to, to you know, uh, get organized with, they got 177 tenants, $1,000 a month. That, that fine means nothing. They'll pay it, and then they just won't resolve the issue. But, <clears throat> you know, there's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot going on. Um, and really trying to get people to understand that, like, <clears throat> you know, these pre-existing temporary assistance programs, oftentimes they don't really help people in the material way they need. We really have to change the relationships and the power structure that exists. That's kind of what we need to be going for. So since that's the case, we kind of have to look towards uh, particularly organizing people and building what is called dual power. Um, A lot of nations, you know, we're talking about Africa, we're talking about Asia, we're talking about Latin America. A lot of nations have actively had to build that throughout, uh, you know, capitalism, imperialism, colonialism. They've had to build that under the thumb of, you know, active repression. And that's what we're having to do today. That's what we're seeing 
uh, indigenous, black, brown, and, uh, you know, Asian folks here on Turtle Island, but also across the world having to do and succeeding it in a lot of ways. I mean, think about the fact that not 30, 40 years ago, uh, half of the global South, uh, <laughs> at least half more of the global South, was actively under some form of colonial dictatorship, narco dictatorship, or imperialist dictatorship. You know, it wasn't until the 80s and 90s that most of Africa, if you can even consider African nations independent, became independent. Venezuela had its uh, 4F, you know, attempt at, at uh, seizing power uh, under the stead of Hugo Chavez uh, not 30 years ago in 1992. And right now, countries like, you know, Sudan, South Africa, Kenya, Swaziland, um, the Philippines, um, you know, nations like Honduras, Dominican Republic, Haiti, they're all, and Palestine, plenty of other places. They're all having to like fucking fight for their lives while also trying to organize themselves into people's governments that can take on the pre-existing social structure that has had hundreds of years of a head start to not only, you know, make a shit ton of money and be really fucking powerful, but remember how they do that. They do that by stealing the wealth from the people and using their power to repress the people. So they are doubly as strong, doubly as wealthy, doubly as powerful as we initially think of them as. And so because of that, we have to take seriously this notion that people have to be given the ability and the, uh, I don't like the words autonomy or authority, but I guess they both apply, to be able to fight for their own liberation. And our goal here as basically the benefactors and the citizens of the imperial core nations have to play our role to overthrow the oppressor so that these liberation struggles can be given fresh air to breathe. I keep trying to hit on that. And this is something that was had to, you know, be pointed out to me because a lot of us who, who first get into leftism were like, yeah, I want free health care. I want free education. I want this, that, and the third. Well, how the fuck are you going to get it? Well, how are Americans getting all of the things that we're getting now? Well, through the imperialization of the global south, through the theft of the foodstuffs, medical supplies, and knowledge from the global south through military occupation of the global south, through pollution and destruction of the global south's land, through forced immigration of people from the global south. And so because of this, we have to realize that if we really want to build a revolution here on Turtle Island, there's a certain way we got to go about doing it that does not lead to more forms of oppression beyond our struggle. Because we want to try to eliminate the contradictions between people. That's friends and foes. Meaning that, you know, if we have a contradiction between someone, our goal is not to ignore it. 
Our goal is not to simply, you know, bog ourselves down and say, okay, I have this contradiction. I'm not moving forward. But we have to learn how to, to resolve them one way or another. You know, the death of a, an enemy is a, a resolved uh, contradiction in the same way that, uh, you know, an allegiance between a former enemy or a former, you know, uh, <laughs> enemy's enemy uh, becoming a, a temporary friend. That is a temporary resolution of a, co- a contradiction. But we have to be tactical. We have to be strategic. We have to know how to wield contradictions. We have to know how to understand the way in which the world is working around us so as to not just simply be subject to what is happening, but to be in charge of what is happening, to be in control. And not us for the benefit of us, but the people for the benefit of the people, you know? So if all of that shit makes sense, yo, um, I think that in wrapping up here, I want to just hit on the fact that there's a few really good articles I'd like you to read on hoodcommunist.org. One titled Enemies and Friends Resolving Contradictions by Ready for Revolution. Another titled Class Struggle and Freedom Beyond Colonial Borders by Sharif Berdinstelli. And the last one, Organizing Africans Against the Capitalist System by Ajamu Umi. Uh, I thought that those were all incredible. And the last thing I wanted to say is this. When we're talking about democracy, when we're talking about changing the relationships that exist in reality, the joint statement between Russia and China said, that democracy is a means of citizens' participation in the government of their country. And he all, they also went on to say it is the implementation of the principle of popular government. Now, it's not necessarily important who those words came from. If you don't like President Xi or you don't like Putin, I don't fucking care. Really. Genuinely. Remember that. I don't care. So don't fucking message me about it. But if you're willing to understand then that those are individuals who are going against the common notion that democracy is is the United States military showing up on your shores with the idea that democracy is actually the people in power, that is monumental. That's what we need. And that's what countries like Bolivia, Venezuela, Nicaragua, Vietnam, China, um, formerly, you know, places like Burkina Faso, Ghana, the Soviet Union, um, and plenty of other places that have, you know, since been uh, overwhelmed, invaded, infiltrated, and attacked nonstop for generations, uh, who have ultimately, in a lot of cases, uh, succumbed to the consequences that is capitalist uh dictatorship and uh, global hegemony of imperialism. But we can change that because what democracy needs to be is people taking power for themselves, implementing a dictatorship of the proletarian and exploited class, as well as implementing a process of scientific socialism so as to be able to work our way out of capitalist hegemony towards socialist hegemony. Long live the revolution, folks. Long live Cuba. Long live Venezuela. Long live Nicaragua. 
and the Sandinistas. Long live China and the Chinese People's Revolution. Long live, uh, you know, scientific socialism. Long live the people's struggle. Uh, find ways to get involved in people's movements in your area. Find ways to study them, learn how they organize, and put those lessons into action. Also learn, my friends, as much as you can, not for the sake of learning, but for the sake of passing that knowledge around so that we can organize and ultimately destroy the capitalist and imperialist system. Peace.